The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Rory Bremner. Rory is one of Britain's leading comedians, impressionists and political satirists. He's known for his work on Mock the Week, the award-winning show Rory Bremner, Who Else? and the sketch comedy series Bremner, Bird and Fortune. Rory, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you for having me, it's very nice, thank you. You haven't sent a hamper, it hasn't arrived. <laughs> it's, on its, it's on its way. <laughs> We're talking about food, but we haven't got any food at all. <laughs> I've got a cup of tea, does that count? And you've got, yes, you've got a coffee I've there. I've got a decaf oat milk coffee, which is quite really. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's good. Okay, it's lovely to be here. Rory, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? <laughs> My food memory? Scottish childhood, and so uh, mum was, you know, she, she had a few things she did really well. Uh, I remember sort of fish pies and things. Like she used to put curry powder into the fish pie, and years later I was doing a thing with Clement Freud, who was a sort of cook, but also quite pedantic. And I said, oh, yes, we had fish pie with curry powder. And he said... No, that's kedgeree. I said, no, no, it was a fish pie, it was potato. No, that's kedgeree. We had an argument about... So he seemed to think he knew more about my mother's cooking than I did. Um, <laughs> and she'd sort of rissoles and things like that. And, um, yeah, so I... But I was never a sort of cook. She didn't sort of encourage me to cook. At school, um, I was at a boarding school outside Edinburgh. And <laughs> we used to ask... There was a dinner lady and we'd always, there was a, a competition. You'd ask her what, what we were having for lunch and she'd, she'd say, soup, meat and pudding. Soup, meat and pudding, and that was as specific as it got. So that's all sort of changed now because uh, Scottish food, as I'll talk about later on, actually, funnily enough, uh, I've just run a cookery programme up in uh, the Highlands with Nick Nairn, uh, who's a renowned Scottish chef, and uh, he and uh, Diggy Vipond, who's a, a, a drummer, do a programme called The Great Food Guys, which you should feature on this because uh, they are great. They're lovely guys. And I spent a morning in the Highlands cooking. It was, uh, the French call it daube, but it's, uh, so it's cheeks, beef cheeks. And uh, they put it, it, did a sort of Asian thing. They were putting into soy sauce, light soy sauce, dark soy sauce mirin, some namplar fish sauce, they put some stout in there as well, there was ginger cinnamon, chilli, I mean the kitchen sink went in it. it, they cooked it for four hours and oh my god did it taste good, so Scottish uh, food, Scottish cooking and of course Scotch whisky you know the last 20 years or so it's become, it's fantastic because people are sort of bringing out all those local traditions and but I lived, in, of course, in living in Edinburgh. I mean, north of us, we had beautiful raspberries from, from Blairgowrie in Perthshire and the strawberries from Pencaitland, which was sort of local to Edinburgh. It's only about sort of 20 or 30 miles outside Edinburgh, I think. Less than that. There are deer parts where there's sort of local venison, Pentland potatoes. I mean, it's, it's just one of nature's absolute you know, cooking pots, um, the Scottish uh, borders, the whole area between the Scottish borders and the Highlands. So much food from there. So I was very lucky to come from that part of the world. 
Just to take you back slightly, Rory, what were mealtimes like in your family? <laughs> mealtimes, they were, well, Dad was never around. He, he kind of, uh, he preferred to be, a, he was had a sort of club in, a, in the sort of centre of Edinburgh. And so we didn't see him a tremendous amount. So it was just me and my brother. But he was at sort of uh, at boarding school as well. So I only really saw him when he was, when I, he was eight, uh, he went off to boarding school. So I was four. And then I left uni at uh, what 22 so from from when I was four to 22 I only ever saw him during the holidays Sundays that was it that was Sunday and dad would sort of just uh, we call him the human dustbin because he would just eat everything that was left I didn't go out to eat a lot there's a restaurant called Darling's in Edinburgh which I remember it must be related to Alistair Darling the ex the sort of Labour Chancellor because you know how many Dar- well there's a lot of Darling's in, in Edinburgh Darling but I do remember that, that was, they had this sort of braised meat and they served mashed potato in those ice cream scoops you you know, there's sort of weird things like that. And that, I remember sort of being a real treat. But we didn't eat out a lot. We didn't have a great deal of money when I was um, younger. And I just remember two holidays. One, we went to um, Normandy, Brittany, Normandy, in the north of France and ended up cooking in the hotel room on a campus stove. <laughs> so I hope there's not a scorched carpet or something there. So we did that once, and then another time we took the campus stove to the end of a, a pier, and the tide had gone out, and these French people would come out for the... They would uh, flenny, which is the French for sort of stroll, you know, an evening stroll, and they'd walk to the end of the pier, and they'd wonder what this strange smell was wafting up from underneath the, 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 the pier, and it was us cooking on a campus stove. <laughs> so we became a curiosity. But... You know, food really, it was only sort of later on, sort of in my um, early 20s or so, that I started to realise, and that that coincided with a, a real explosion in, in British cooking. There were all these chefs, there were sort of Gary Rhodes in, in the castle in Taunton, I think he was. There was um, the Rue Brothers, the Riverside, there was... Uh, um, who else was starting out? Oh, the, the Carved Angel in Dartmouth. And there was just that, that the 80s. And of course, we know now there was this whole kind of nursery of cooks. Marco Pierre White, um, Nick Nairn himself, worked in the kitchens at Harvey's where Marco Pierre White was working. Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, all these people. And now the chefs we see today. So, But when I was young, this is the thing. Honestly, uh, this is long before you were born. But I know when I was young, I remember, you know, honestly, they thought that a great grapefruit um, with a little cherry on the top that was a starter or tomato juice that was a starter they really would they would serve you a tomato juice on a plate and that would be the starter I mean it's just unbelievable now but that's <laughs> that was uh that was a childhood 1970s and ni- in the 1970s in Edinburgh late 60s early 70s and you mentioned this sort of food revolution that was that was happening when you reached your early 20s were you cooking at home then or was that something that you were aware of as you went out <laughs> No, I mean, I, I kind of did a couple of student things, you know, like a stews and, and, you know, spag bowl that everybody does and that kind of thing. But no, really, it was kind of, it's only been the last 10 years that I've suddenly, I just love cooking, but I'm hopeless at it. I'm not an instinctive cook. I will, fo- I will follow things to the letter. So much so that one New Year's Eve, about oh, sort of 10, 12 years ago, I was cooking and it was a Nigel Slater recipe and he said allow two chilies per person so we were having 16 people around this is pre-covid by the way just to point that out uh, <laughs> there's not six people from two families this was, this, was, this was in fact 16 people who were uh, I heard the word covid had never been invented so it was 16 people so I thought okay right two chilies per, that's 32 chilies so I put 32 chilies into this soup and I tell you <laughs> 
<laughs> I tasted it after about 20 minutes and oh my god I thought ah oh, this, this is really oh, this has gone terribly badly wrong and that's just following recipes literally um, which I still sort of tend to do but I kind of was lucky I met a couple of chefs Anthony Worrell Thompson he was obviously he had Ménage à Trois in um, Knightsbridge I think Beecham Place in the sort of mid 80s onwards and I sort of met him in the early 90s and sort of became pals and we ended up on a a holiday together we I sort of um booked this a villa in in Italy and John McCarthy who is also part of Freedom from Torture which I know we're going to talk about um in a moment a charity which was originally the medical foundation for the care of victims for torture um who were doing this whole seat at the table thing but John McCarthy we'd become friends and so it was John and me a couple of other friends and Anthony and we spent a week or 10 days whatever it was at this villa in Italy everyone sort of mucked in we all cooked for each other and Anthony taught us how to do um make a, a risotto and he would uh, there was one occasion where he um, uh, he decided we were going to do pork fillet. So I went off and bought, bought a pork fillet. Unbeknown to me, he went off and bought, bought a pork fillet. So we ended up with sort of two of these. But he went round, it was in the middle of an orchard, and he stripped the trees of figs and plums and things like that. Anyway, the fruit. And he, he so we stuffed the pork fillet with fruit and figs and cooked it out in an outdoor stove with rosemary twigs. And it was just the most delicious thing so that was my starting point I think for thinking that just food is is wonderful it is so much about coming together and and about friends there's nothing like you know a a group of friends living together cooking together and just sharing the meals together on a holiday it was it was just a wonderful experience just again to take you back slightly to your university days because you studied modern languages at King's College London and I think I'm right in saying you worked on the cabaret circuit in the evenings, what what was that like? Was it? I mean, was it quite? Oh, it's great. Boozy, boozy well, affair. Just, oh well, it was a very exciting time. It was the early eighties in London, and I mean, there was an uh, alternative comedy which just just begun around that time. It, they had the the comedy store in uh, London, and or what became the comedy store in London, but all people like um, Alexi Sale and. Uh, Oh God, all the different names, but um, and so French and Saunders began in those days. But also, I was born in Edinburgh, and the Edinburgh festivals at that time. Um, if you had been in Edinburgh between seventy nine and eighty one, you would have seen Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, Clive Anderson, Rick Mail, Victoria Wood. Rowan Atkinson. It was an absolute explosion. And I kind of arrived at that time, wanted to be part of that. So, with Edinburgh as a hometown the circus came to town literally every August and so there were so many shows to see and then by the time I'd got to university there was some change in the licensing laws which meant that places that had been theatres above pubs they couldn't do the same kind of performances so they became stand-up comedy venues and so you'd have days when I would do my lectures and stuff and you know, the seminars in the, in the day but I might have three bookings in the evening so I'd start off at the Finborough Arms in Earl's Court and then jump on the Piccadilly line and go up to uh, the Hemingford Arms which was up in Islington somewhere and then double back down to Battersea where there was jongleurs and um, finish off sort of late, late on in the bill at Jongleurs. Just great times. And that's where I met other comedians like like Mark Steele. Mark Steele who's still going strong today. Mark is one of my favourite comedians. And um, Jeremy Hardy. 
and Julian Clary was the Joan Collins fan club. That was how he started on the London cabaret circuit, so there was that. There was a great group double act called Calypso Beat, who literally did that. They went around the audience, one guy with a guitar, and the other one singing and picking on the audience and making up songs. And they were wonderful. They were the best closing act of all time because they just got people going and they got people singing. And that was, as I say, a man on a guitar who went off and became a teacher in New Zealand. And the singer was da, 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 Ainsley Harriet. Oh, yeah, what am I like? So, you know, he's working on the cabaret circuit. And no, he didn't sound all of it. And then he came into the award. Oh, yeah, what am I like? Eh? I became a big chef, you know. So, yeah, so there's a funny little connection there. But, yeah, that was a great time. University in the day and shows at night. And I didn't know what I wanted to do at that time. But sort of inspired, really, this, like my second education was the comedians on the circuit. As I say, Jeremy, Mark Steele, John Dowie, and improvisation, a couple of Steve Steen and Jim Sweeney. And it was a sort of it was a really heady time. And by the time I left university, in fact the day I finished my finals, I think I got a call from the BBC to do it's called Weekending. That was their sketch show uh, that they did in those days. And I was kind of very lucky. I was off and running. Um so there was there was actually no gap between me finishing university and starting in radio and TV. I was very lucky. When did you become aware that you had this talent for impressions specifically? Last Thursday. <laughs> I don't know. It sort of comes and goes. I think, yeah, well, actually at school, it was at school. I remember uh, doing impressions. I was the class clown, which I now recognise as being one of the features of having ADHD, which is my best friend and worst enemy. But I used to do impressions of teachers uh, at school. And uh, Derek Swift was my French teacher and he was fantastic. He actually taught taught me French and and, um, he also taught us Russian in his spare time and and in our spare time. It was a great year. We were a very, very lucky, very lucky cohort. It was a bit like the History Boys. There were about half a dozen of us who loved learning we loved and so we we loved his classes and we went off and learned Russian and he was the first impression that I did in public that was my thanks to him was he became my first <laughs> victim uh, but I do remember at a, a kid's party um a kid's party so, so, so I was like balloons and cake and stuff I mean it was a university party and just doing Rowan Atkinson sketches or uh, impressions of the teachers and people sort of gathered around in a circle and a, a little sort of thing clicked in my head I thought God, actually, this is fun. And people said, oh, you should do this. You should, you should do this professionally. And so um, I think, how did I, what was, the, what was the jump? I think, yeah, just doing open spots in Edinburgh at, uh, on the cabaret circuit, starting off doing a few minutes of sports commentators like, you know, um, Bill McLaren, who, of course, from Scotland, I was very familiar with his rugby commentary, or Peter O'Sullivan, the, the great racing commentator. Um, and I started off with that, and because of an interest in politics, I sort of moved on to doing Neil Kinnock, of course, in those days, and uh, Michael Heseltine. These are all very, very. These are all a long time before you were, you were born. And then there's uh, the mid '80s and Thatcher, and by the time I was doing television shows, it was John Major, and we went into those major years. I think 1992, that unexpected, a victory, the greatest victory ever, ever, uh, <laughs> the most number of votes ever by a political party. And then through the 80s and then into, into Teddy Blair and, and Gordon Brown and, and, and David Blunkett and, and John Prescott and, and Robin Cook and, uh, and William Hague and Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela and all of those characters that were part of my act in the, in the 90s. 
And you're obviously known for your political satire. And we know you can do Ainsley Harriet, but are there other chefs that you can do impressions of? Well, I wish I've always wished I could do a better Jamie Oliver, a better or a better Gordon Ramsay. But I suppose Anthony Moore because because Anthony's a friend, so yeah, I was always able to do that voice. And uh, I, I, it's, I don't think it's his favourite impression, but it's one. Of, it used to be one of mine. And Ainsley was great. We used to love funding. Oh, do, you remember, do you remember Keith Floyd? He was absolutely fantastic. You know, oh, right. Okay. Right. What we're going to do is we're going to. Sorry. Could you move away? I'm going to have a drink. Little, little, just a small drink. Thank you, Raj. And we used to have this thing. We have a bottle of wine, and you know, a little slug would go into the stew, and a bigger slug would go dr- straight down my throat. There we go. Oh, cheers. Right. Um, so I just used to have such fun doing the chefs because, like every, I mean, I was just I had license for 15, 20 years when I was doing Bremen Bird and Fortune to kind of take on. The these characters and they'd build a wonderful set a wonderful sort of kitchen behind me we had fantastic makeup and off you'd go and do these sort of crazy sketches so I was very very lucky when it comes to your own cooking you've you said that you uh you follow recipes diligently which is very much a man after my own heart I'm an avid recipe follower often to the point of destroying the dish which recipes or chefs, you know, who, who do you follow? Who do you turn to when you're cooking? Well, there's about four or five. I mean, Nigella, of course. Nigella Lawson has a lovely book called Feast. And so when it comes to, if it's uh, Christmas, I'll look out. She does a lovely thing with, with Brussels sprouts and pancetta and chestnuts and marsala. Um, and that's a lovely, because you always think, what are you going to put with the with the turkey? Um, so, and also uh, we grow a lot of rhubarb. We live in a priory now. And the nuns, I think, grew a lot of um, rhubarb when they were here. So we've got these fantastic so and Nigel has a wonderful recipe for rhubarb muffins Nigel Slater his book Real Food which is great so there's a lot of cream and a lot of calories in that book but wonderful one from there Gordon Ramsay has a spinach tart that I do in his book Gordon Ramsay makes it easy and it does make it easy there's an easy one there and there's a beautiful recipe with fusilli and peas and pancetta and bacon actually it's just such a simple recipe actually it's just you know you should fry some bacon lardons and you know, sort of a spring onion or an onion put in a whole lot of pour in a whole lot of cream stir that around add the sort of cooked fusilli to that and pea and peas and uh, it's delicious it's a sort of adaptation of a french recipe anthony's version is you cook bacon and a spring onion and add cream and a shredded little gem lettuces and peas and my wife said, well, why don't we add gnocchi to that? So it's a lovely dish. So, so as I say, spring onions, bacon, cream, lettuce, little gem lettuce and peas, and then you shove in gnocchi at the end of that. And the children love that. So there's all those, but still following, uh, literally. But actually, I, I kind of, when I was courting Tessa, the tagine featured largely in my life, which I'd first come across... We were travelling across Turkey. This is before I met Tessa. Um, we were doing a sort of car rally and got stuck in a storm, which I just looked it up today, and it was a, it was a, a record storm in Morocco in April, a, April 1995. And uh, Betty Boothroyd, I remember, was stranded, the former speaker. She was stranded in the mountains as well that, that same week. So there were horrendous rains, and we were nearly washed off the road. Uh, I remember literally driving across a bridge as the wave hit it. And the car sort of moved about 10 feet from left to right as the water suspected. So we were, and we got split up from our companions, we got lost. And anyway, we ended up in this village and these, these, these people sort of took us in and they cooked a meal and they cooked off my first tagine. And that really brings us back to the seat at the table, um, freedom from torture thing, because this is this extraordinary thing about food bringing people together. 
And I mean, there's two remarkable words, companion, of course, which comes from the Latin com and panis, bread, eating bread together. So companions are literally people that you eat with together. They're people who come together around food. And the word mate as well comes from a middle low German word and is associated with our word meat. So mate and meat. So you talk about, hi, my mate, your mate is somebody who you eat with. And that's why eating together and the joy of eating together, which is something we've so missed, you know, under under all this, uh, you know, six from two families, all that, you know, you, you're not able to, although well, six from two, I think I remember that, but I think that's Boris's children, isn't it? That's six, six people from, six people <laughs> from two families. Or well, I think, no, technically it was three families, but I was still in the second when I had the fifth. Uh, and and so anyway, anyway, let's draw a veil. So what we've missed is coming together, eating together. And so that's why Freedom From Torture has done this uh, as well, there's a seat at the table, which you see on the Freedom for, From Torture website, where they've got people like Joanna Lumley and John McCarthy and Alexi Sale to talk about their desert island dish, as it were, and what they would cook and their experiences with food as we're doing now. So that was about sort of coming together and about being taken in by strangers and fed by strangers, which is a wonderful, as I say, wonderful link to people who are have fled to this country and sort of seeking asylum, refugees and the kind of people that Freedom From Torture helps over a thousand of them um, a year and the one of the things food is is a, a theme that runs through the charity when Helen Bamber started it many many years ago she brought in Emma Thompson and myself and a few others and um, food was a thing because it was one thing that that reminded people of families and coming together and um, it was a, a rather 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 wonderful concept actually because it's one of the most human things. Rory, that leads us neatly on to what is often our final question, which is that what is your desert island meal? Okay, my, oh, my my desert island meal. I'm hopeless with questions, what's your favourite? Because, you know, it just depends what mood you're in. It really does. I mean, I do, tagines are lovely, as I say, and I've got sort of those associations. I think, um, oh my goodness me, what would I start? Maybe start with a cheese souffle or... Actually, I do like these... um, Ceviche um, things. Some people say ceviche or ceviche, but that's an amazing thing if you get um, if you can get some really nice um, sea bream or sea bass, and you don't even have to cook it. It's with lemon juices and lime juices. There's Jamie Oliver Peruvian ceviche, which people then get very angry and they talk about cultural appropriation, which I'm sure is a big thing at the Spectator about. You know, when I started talking about cooking beef cheeks in in an Asian sauce, you got people sort of think, "Well, is, is are they going to be accused of cultural?" appropriation so yes uh, a ceviche or something like that but sometimes you know uh, I, I i just keep coming back to italian food because italian food is so simple it's just extraordinary i mean those combinations of flavors mozzarella with with tomato and basil i mean it's just the most obvious and simple thing i mean who else but the italians would think up come up with you know vitello tonato i mean you think what am i going to do with that veal i know um i'm going to cover it in tuna sauce what's that about i mean but it tastes delicious and of course you know all the pizzas and the pastas and things that they do so um i mean i'm absolutely hopeless on my actual actual desert island disc i mean dish rather i mean i'll i'll say tagine for now because i say it has sort of many memories and uh, pudding, I don't know, one of the best puddings I've ever had. We were very lucky. We were taken to the Monaco Grand Prix. In 2007, we went there with Jackie Stewart. And on the, one of the nights, he took us to the hotel, you know, the Hotel de Paris. And we're at the top 
the restaurant there on the top floor and they bring out this Grand Marnier souffle. And, oh my goodness, I mean, it's just enormous, but beautifully cooked, as you'd expect. But this souffle, which is kind of just infused with, with Grand Marnier. And as we were eating it, we heard this sort of like rattling above our heads and it was the roof going back. And we were on the top floor of the Hotel de Paris in Monaco and the roof was opening to reveal the stars above us in, in Grand Prix weekend. And, I mean, just... <laughs> Just, just ridiculous. So location, food, of course, it's 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 where you're eating as well. Um, and what I was talking about earlier about you know being in the in a village in in Morocco and eating a tagine that had been cooked by a family that we'd never met. You know, then again, it's that was it was that coming together of people and place and food. So it is. Um, you know, it's it's whether it's uh, as, as a family or even on your own with a sort of tin of beans, it's our fuel. It's it's what keeps us going. But in socially, it's what brings us together. And uh, I hope as we as we open up, uh, as we go forward uh, beyond lockdown, we will be realizing that life is about memories. I lost a couple of friends in the last year, not through COVID through other things and they were you know best friends and I realize now that you know what you what you do when when a friend dies it's almost like you're given a sort of dvd of the highlights of your time together that will come back in in the memory over uh, over time and it's making those memories that is so important it's time spent traveling together eating together um, enjoying life together and so that's why you know I can't wait to be creating more memories and I love being at the heart of things I love cooking for people I think it's I think most chefs I did say to this when I cooked with Nick Nairn I said are all chefs is it generosity do they love people and he said no I hate people (laughs) so he was joking but um, I think you know it's it's a it's a bit of love really isn't it it's saying you know I want to do something and also it's about spending time time is like money like a commodity when I'm cooking, I think, do you know what? I'm now going to spend the next hour, I'm going to put some music on and I'm going to follow, get out a recipe book, whether it's the Jamie one or the Nigella one or the Nigel Slater one or whatever, or the Raymond Blanc one, some lovely recipes there. Um, and I'm going to spend the next hour or so cooking and we're going to enjoy it together as friends, which is what it's all about. Rory, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. (laughs) 